صلوا على محمد وآل محمد أعوذ بالله من الشيطان اللعين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على خاتم الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ونبينا محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين صلى الله عليه وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين صلى الله عليك يا رسول الله صلى الله عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا أبا عبد الله غريب يا مظلوم كربلاء ما خاب من تمسك بكم وأمنا من لجأ إليكم يا ليتنا فيا ليتنا كنا معكم سيدي فنفوز والله فوزا عظيما قال تعالى في كتابه الكريم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم فاستجاب لهم ربهم أني لا أضيع أجر عامل منكم أني لا أضيع عمل عامل منكم من ذكر أو صدق الله العلي العظيم صلوا على محمد وآل محمد Respected elders, brothers and sisters Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh When we speak about the role of the women in the movement of Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam, we oftentimes limit the discussion to the ladies who were with him in Karbala. However, when you examine the revolution of Imam al-Hussein, you see that the story of his movement contains the contributions of some of the most remarkable women in the history of Islam. Women in Medina, women in Kufa, women in Basra, women in Sham, who all contributed in their unique way to the movement of Imam al-Hussein. And what is remarkable about these women is that they made tremendous contributions 
And they never felt that their femininity was a weakness. They saw themselves as equally noble to their male counterparts. But they also recognized that they had an unequal role. They had their unique way of supporting the movement of Imam al-Hussein. When you look at the specifics of what they achieved, you see, my dear brothers and sisters, on the one hand, Imam al-Hussein he brought with him an entire caravan of ladies. Women and children accompanied him. And this might sound puzzling, especially when you consider that he's going towards a very dangerous situation where there will likely be a military conflict. Imam al-Hussein knew that he would be martyred. But he also knew that his story would not be told accurately by his enemies. He knew that the Umayyads would try to distort his message. He knew that his enemies would try to bury his message. He knew that the state would not be fair in representing what he stood for. And therefore, he had to bring with him the women and the children because he knew that in Arabian culture, you don't kill women. He knew that they would survive. And because he knew that they would survive, he put his message as an amana with those ladies. They had the responsibility of telling the world what really happened in Karbala. The reason why we know what happened is because of the incredible patience of those women. The reason why we know what happened is because those women made sure that every movement that happened on that day was forever etched in their, in their memory. So tonight, my dear brothers and sisters, I want to speak a little bit about the individual women who made this revolution happen. So the women who surrounded Imam al-Hussein, they played a pivotal role in telling the world, delivering the message of what Imam al-Hussein wanted to achieve. Now oftentimes, we think that that's all the women did. They gave those sermons, and that's about it. They just told the masses about what happened. But their presence was even deeper than that. You know, my dear brothers and sisters, women can be some of the most powerful motivators. As a man, if another man tells you to man up, to step up, 
that's going to give you a little bit of a boost. But if your women folk tell you, man up, it has a different effect. And therefore, one of the most important roles that the women played in Karbala and in other cities is that they raised the morale of those men who wanted to support Imam al-Husayn. If they saw any weakness, they gave them that feminine nudge, just like Dulham did when Zuhair ibn al-Qayn was unsure about whether to join Hussein. She didn't need to act like a man. Because femininity is not a weakness. All she had to do was look at him and say, Zuhair, the grandson of the Prophet calls you and you don't respond. Ten men could have lectured him about joining Hussein, but all it took was his wife to nudge him for him to join Abi Abdullah and write his name on the list of Shuhada of Karbala. That's power. That's a lot of power, dear brothers and sisters. Raising the morale. Some of the women had so much love for Imam al-Husayn that they actually participated in the battle. One woman was so overcome by what she was witnessing that she lost herself in that moment and entered the battlefield. And we'll speak about what Imam al-Husayn said to her. So there were some who were so fearless that, in fact, some of them were more fearless than that army of men that stood in front of Imam al-Husayn. Some of the women who helped the message were the wives of the enemies of Imam al-Husayn. You had powerful women, good women, noble women on both sides. Ibn Ziyad's own mother disowned him. Ibn Marjan, uh, 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 Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad, his mother disowned him. Hind, the wife of Yazid, she rebuked her husband. Some of these women, they had more courage than an army of men. So the role of condemning the crimes was very important. In fact, the fact that this, the stance that these women took made the crime even worse because their own women folk were indicting them for their crimes, solidifying the case against them. So no one can deny that these people were oblivious of what they were doing. Forever it will be on record that Hind, the wife of Yazid, rebuked Yazid for his treatment of Al-Muhammad. Some of the women in the story of Karbala 
they gave shelter to the lovers of Hussein. When others were too afraid. Last night, we mentioned the story of Taw'a. That old lady that lived in Kufa. We don't have any information about her. We don't know anything about her. Nothing remarkable about her life. But in a city of soldiers, she was the only one who was willing to give refuge to Muslim ibn Aqil. You know, brothers and sisters, in the secular world, women are often taught that the only way for you to leave your mark is to make yourself visible and come out. Tawa never left her home, but we're talking about her over a thousand years later. You can change the world from your house. The only reason why we know this woman's name is because she stood with Haq when others were too afraid. She gave refuge. In Basra, when the Shias came together and it was not safe to meet up, a woman gave her home to be used as a meeting place for the Shias to plan how they would join Hussein ibn Ali. And two or three of them eventually made it to Karbala. That woman, she has a part of that thawab. These women, they facilitated that. Yeah, they weren't front and center. But who said that you have to be in the limelight to leave your mark? in this world. This is something that we have to understand, my dear brothers and sisters. Another thing that we see, especially with the women, and the head of the women was none other than Sayyidah Zainab salawatullahi alayha. One of the primary responsibilities of Sayyidah Zainab after the martyrdom of Imam al-Hussein was to look after the heartbroken women and the traumatized children. You know what's amazing about Sayyidah Zainab? She is the one who experienced the greatest musibah on that day. She's the younger sister of Imam al-Hussein. She lost more than anybody. She had the strength to process her own trauma and to be the shoulder that others cry on at the same time. To grieve and to be a source of strength at the same time. No man could do what Sayyidah Zainab did. Women are better at that. There are some things that women are better at. Women are natural healers. 
They are. They have the ability to make calamities more bearable. It's that magical feminine touch that the secular world wants to crush. Imam Zainul Abidin, salawatullahi alayhi, Allahumma salli ala Imam Zainul Abidin, he comments on the spiritual intelligence and the emotional intelligence of Sayyidah Zainab, the deep ma'rifah of this woman. He says, Oh my aunt, anti bihamdillahi alimatun ghayru mu'allama. Oh my aunt, with the praise of Allah, you are an untaught scholar. These are the women of Ahlul Bayt. And if you'll allow me very briefly, I want to mention some of the names of these incredible women. And I'd like to begin in Medina. I'd like to begin with Ummul Banin, salawatullahi alayha. Umm al-Banin was not in Karbala. Physically, she wasn't there. But she made probably the greatest contribution to Karbala. She doesn't need to hold a sword. She doesn't need to be a man. She was that mother that raised those four heroic sons who changed the world. Abel Fadl al-Abbas is not Abel Fadl al-Abbas without the tarbiya of Ummul Banin. You know, we talk a lot about influencers today. This person's an influencer and that person's an influencer. The greatest influencer in life is a mother. That's the greatest influencer. Where do you think that sense of sacrifice and selflessness that was in Abel Fadl Abbas came from? Where do you think that came from? That unwavering loyalty and love for Imam al Hussein, where do you think that came from? Do you think the terbiyah of Abel Fadl al-Abbas was exported to someone else? This is a man that was raised by that great woman. When Ali married her, and she came, she was a new bride. Before she entered the house, her new home, with her husband Ali ibn Abi Talib, she said to Amir al-Mu'mineen, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, can I speak to your children before I enter the house? Can I speak to the children of Fatima before I enter? He said, yes, speak to them. Hassan, Hussein, Sayyidah Zainab, Umm Kulthum, they stood. And she said to them, 
that when I walk into this house, you're not my servants. I'm your servant. Because you are the children of Sayyidat Nisa al-Alameen. This woman had so much love for Ahlul Bayt. That she says to Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib that don't call me by my first name. Why? Because my name is also Fatima. I have the same name, but I am not Fatima to Zahra, salawatullahi alayha. When you have a mother like that, who sees herself as nothing but a khadima of Ahlul Bayt. Are you surprised to see Abel Fadl al-Abbas in Karbala? Every drop of blood that fell from the body of those boys, it's on her record on the Day of Judgment. This is Ummul Benin. Um Salama, in Medina as well, the noble wife of the Prophet, she was given a vial containing the turba of Karbala. Rasulullah told her that this soil is from a land in Iraq in which my, grands my grandson Hussein will be martyred. It will happen in the future after I leave this world. On the day that you see this vial turn red, know that my beloved Hussein has been killed. She would look at it every day. Day after day after day. And when it became red, for the rest of her life, she was one of the leading figures in establishing the Aza of Imam al Hussein in Medina. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. We come to Ar Rabab. Ar Rabab, the beloved wife of Imam al Hussein. What can I say about this woman? A woman who was immersed in the love of the family of the Prophet. A woman who raised a daughter for Imam al-Husayn named Sukayna, who is the mother of Abdullah. Imam al-Husayn loved this woman. And I'm not just talking about the emotional love that exists between Husbands and wives, it's something deeper than that. Imam al Hussein loved her because she was a woman of God. And Ar Rabab, she loved Imam al Hussein with every atom of her being because he was a man of God. Their love for each other, which was rooted in love of Allah was so strong that Imam al-Husayn, he composed a short poem 
expressing his love for Ar-Rabab. Brothers and sisters, Wallah, and I'm on the member of Imam Al-Hussein. The personality of Imam Al-Hussein is a mu'jizah. To have someone who is the most masculine of men, a man of all men, who's a lion in the battlefield. But at the same time, there is this softness to him with women and children. It's amazing. It's something that we have to learn. What does he say about Ar-Rabab? He says, لَعَمْرُكَ إِنَّنِي لَأُحِبُّ دَارًا تَحِلُّ بِهَا سُكَيْنَةُ وَالرَّبَابُ Imam al-Hussein says, don't, don't blame me. He says, I swear by you, by your life, that I love a house. I love a house in which in it, is Sukaina and Rabab. And he says, I am willing to give all my wealth to these two and let no one blame me for that. Love. All rooted in the love of Allah Azza wa Jal. And this woman, can you imagine how she felt when she lost Imam Hussein, the same Hussein that she built a life with, she composed a poem after the martyrdom of Imam Al Hussein, and I'll just read the English for you. She says about Imam Al Hussein, "For me, you were like an unshakable mountain." in which I found protection. And she says to him, and you looked after us with mercy and religious conviction. Now who is there for the orphans and for those who are destitute? And who will give shelter to the impoverished and make them needless? And then look at what Rabab says. I swear by Allah, I shall not desire to have another husband after you until I am covered between the sand and the earth. The lesson for us brothers is live in such a way where your wife can say that about you. That is what it means to be Husseini. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Um Wahab, I told you that there was a woman who was overcome with emotion on the day of Ashura that she entered the battlefield. Um Wahab's husband was one of the companions. He was fighting. And when she saw her beloved husband fighting valiantly in the battlefield, and when she saw 
the intensity of the moment, she grabbed a pole from the tents and entered the battlefield saying to her husband, Fidaka Abi wa Ummi, Qatil Duna Tayyibin, Dhuriyati Muhammad. She was overcome. And this is where Imam al Hussein stepped in. And he says to her, he appreciated that love. But he said to her that jihad is not the responsibility of women. He didn't say to her, yes, men and women, we're equal, let's go. The imam didn't say that. We have a role and you have a role. Jannah will be given to both of you. But we have different paths. The problem is... We want Jannah and we want to tell Allah how we're going to get there. We're equal in nobility, but we're unequal in roles. Sallu ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. The daughter of Abdullah ibn Afif al-Azdi. When the head of Imam al-Hussein was brought to Kufa, Ibn Ziyad, he started to play with the lips of Abi Abdullah. Abdullah ibn Afif al-Azdi, he says, I swear by God that those are the lips that Rasulullah used to kiss. Allahu Akbar. Ibn Ziyad, it was a crowd of people. Who said that? Abdullah ibn Afif al-Azdi was a blind man. He said, Ana ya Allah. I said it, O enemy of God. Shaja'a. People are different. This is a brave man. He goes home. They raid his house. He's a blind man. His daughter was home. He says to his daughter, Hand me my sword. Hand me my sword. You're blind. Tell me where they're coming from. He held his sword and his daughter would say to her father, they're coming from the right. He would strike. They're coming from the left. He would strike. These are the women. These are our women that we should be proud of. These are the types of women that the school of Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad produced. Sallu ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. And of course, we know about the role of Sayyidah Zainab. The role of Sayyidah Zainab was unmatched. She carried the heaviest burden she gave the most powerful sermons in Kufa, in Sham. But I want to state something parenthetically tonight. There is another elephant that we have to address in the room. What do I mean? 
You see, my dear brothers and sisters, in recent times, we see that a lot of liberal-minded Muslims, who I believe have the best of intentions, but they come up with bad ideas. Many of you have probably been to workshops, seminars, where the theme is women's empowerment. In Islam, we're not against women's empowerment. What do you mean by women's empowerment? What typically happens is we have secular values, such as women should be out in the world, brushing shoulders with men, no difference. And what happens is we misrepresent the women of Ahlul Bayt to make our point. What do I mean? Let's start by talking about Khadija. I've been to many seminars and conferences where usually the, high, the, the lesson, the takeaway from Sayyidah Khadija is what? Sisters, do not be bogged down. There's, there's more to life than being a wife and being a mother. There's more to life. Sayyida Khadija was a CEO. And therefore, get out into the world. Make that a priority. Build a business empire. Now I know that there are going to be some key keyboard warriors who are going to make clips and... But we're not talking to these people. We have to address a very critical point here. And the, the point here is, yes, Khadija was the wealthiest woman, woman in Arabia. There's no doubt about that. But what you think she was like is not accurate. Your idea of Sayyida Khadija is ahistorical. Why? How did Sayyida Khadija build her business? It's very different from the way the modern world wants you to build your business. What do I mean? Sayyida Khadija inherited her wealth from her father. She didn't squander the money. She was wise. She invested and she grew that money exponentially. No doubt. But there's another side of Sayyida Khadija that people often don't know or they just don't, they're not interested in looking into. And that is, look at the way she built her business. She created a very clear separation between her and the business merchants who were men. She had agents. Sayyida Khadija was not brushing shoulders in the marketplace with men. She wasn't cutting deals with the likes of Abu Sufyan, firm handshake, businesswoman. That's not Sayyida Khadija. She built a business, a merchant caravan, but she was extremely careful about her modesty. That's, that's a fact. That is an undeniable fact. She was so modest 
that even the most, the most vile men of Arabia would refer to her as the princess of Quraysh. Untouchable. There's another thing that is often omitted from the Khadija story. And that is that she got married to the Prophet at the age of 25. Not 40. That's based on a very weak tradition. But people don't know that because as I said, we don't read. She got married at 25. What did she do after she got married? Did she say to the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah, give me space. I want to build this business empire further. What actually happened was, the moment she got married, her priorities changed. She embraced motherhood immediately. She wanted to have children. The Prophet took over and he was the one who was doing the trading. This is a woman who loved being a mother and a wife more than she liked being an entrepreneur. She loved it. I'm not saying don't, do, don't be an entrepreneur. I'm saying that don't misrepresent Sayyidah Khadija. This is a woman who loved motherhood, who saw the value of motherhood. This is a woman who would climb Jabal al-Nur to deliver food to her husband whom she loved for the sake of Allah. She wasn't ashamed of being a mother. She wasn't ashamed of being a wife. And that part of her life was a very small part of her life. We take one small part of her life and we make it the theme of her life. She lived until she was 50. The, the years that she spent building that wealth was very early on. And when she got married, her priorities changed. Now again, if you don't want to follow that, it's your life. Live however you want. But don't misrepresent the women of Ahlul Bayt to make your point. Fatima to Zahra is another example. Do you know how many times I've heard, we, sisters need to get out there. Because Sayyidah Fatima gave a sermon. There's more to life than motherhood, than being a wife. Get out there. Now I'm not saying don't be a participant in society. But again, when you talk about Al-Khutbatul Fadakiyah, don't decontextualize. Sayyidah Fatima was a woman who was not comfortable putting herself in front of men. She was not. She only interacted with men when it was necessary. How many public sermons did Sayyidah Fatima give? She's the daughter of the Prophet. If there's anyone who is interested in women's empowerment, surely Fatima to Zahra. Or do you know better about women's empowerment than Sayyidat Nisa al-Alameen? 
She gave one public sermon in her entire life. And do you know why it was so powerful? Because Fatima to Zahra never stands in front of a crowd of men. And when she does, it means something. Again, is it haram? I'm not saying it's haram. And I know people are going to miss the point no matter what I say. I'm not saying it's haram. What I'm saying is there's a difference between what is halal and what is ideal. Ahlul Bayt do not live on the edge of halal and haram. They live based on the ideal. I'm not telling you to, what to do with your life. All I'm saying is don't bring Ahlul Bayt down to your level. Keep them up there and strive to climb. That has to remain the North Star. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. There were other women who left a very powerful mark in history. You know, brothers and sisters, after the martyrdom, of Imam al-Husayn alayhi salam when he was beheaded they were so anxious and so eager to deliver the prize to Ibn Ziyad that they wanted to expedite the delivery of the sacred head to Kufa ahead of the caravan that's why Khuli ibn Yazid al-Asbahi was given the head of Imam al-Husayn and they put it in a bag. Allahu Akbar. And he rode through the night until he arrived in Kufa. But he arrived too late. The gate was locked. He wanted to present the head of Imam al-Husayn to ibn Ziyad. But he arrived too late. So he decides to go home, to go to his wife, to go to his family. He knocks on the door. His wife, An-Nawar, she opens the door. What are you doing? It's the middle of the night. I thought you were away. With a sinister smile on his face, he says, I have the riches of the dunya in this bag. She says, what do you have? What do you mean, the riches of this dunya? He says, he opens the bag and says, this is the head of Hussein, the son of Ali. She says to him, Allah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala condemn you Men return to their families from a long journey and they give them presents in the form of gold and silver and you bring to me the head of the grandson of Rasulullah. She says to him, my head and your head will never be on the same pillow ever again.
These women are the reason why we know about the atrocities. These are the women who said no when so many weak-hearted men said yes. He went to sleep. Khuli went to sleep. And he left the head in the house. And An-Nawar, the narrations say that she went close to that head. And she said, when I looked at that head, I was taken by the light emanating from that head. If that is the effect that Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam has when his head is separated from his body, imagine the effect of Hussein when he's speaking to you. My dear brothers and sisters, tonight I want to share with you the famous story of Hur. A man whose life changed because of the light of Imam al-Hussein's face. If you recall, my dear brothers and sisters, Hur was a decorated military commander, so trusted by the Umayyads that he was sent as the one to block Imam al-Hussein from entering Kufa. This is not an ordinary man. This is a very powerful man. A warrior of the highest caliber. But he never knew what the end goal was. To him, I just have these orders, these military orders that I have to execute. I can't let Hussein enter Kufa. He has to relocate. He thought the job was done. But as he stood there on the plains of Karbala in the days leading up to the 10th of Muharram, he saw that there was wave after wave of soldiers arriving, armed to the teeth. And on the morning of Ashura, when he saw that this is going to be a battle, something that he had not anticipated, the narrations say that he looked up at Umar ibn Sa'ad, who was the commander of all of the brigades. And he said to him, Are we really going to fight Sayyid Shabab Ahl al-Jannah? Are we really going to fight Hussein? Umar ibn Sa'ad, he says, yes, and we will not leave a single one of them behind. At that moment, Hur, the commander, the warrior, he began to tremble. Hur had a very close relationship with his men. Many of them were friends for many years. He was standing there and he was trembling. One of his men looked at him and he said, Ya Hur, what's wrong with you? You look like you're shaken up. You look uneasy. You look nervous. Why are you trembling? 
if anyone were to ask me, who is the bravest man in Kufa? I would have said it. It's Hur ibn Yazid al-Riyahi. Hur says, so he says to him, are you afraid? What's wrong with you? Hur says, it's not about fear. I'm at a crossroads in my life at this moment. I have to now make a decision that will alter my eternal life. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. He says, why are you trembling? I see myself at this moment choosing between paradise and hellfire. And I will not choose anything over paradise. He makes the decision in the final moment. He mounts his horse. He turns his direction into the camp of Hussein. He rides towards Aba Abdullah Hussein. He has the Quran on his head. He puts his hands on his head to signal that he is not planning an attack. The narration say he covers his face as he approaches the camp of Imam al-Hussein. He calls out, As-salamu alayka ya ibn Rasulillah. Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam at that moment, he says, Man and who are you? His face was covered. Who is the who one, is the one who, is who is sending salam to us on a day when we have no supporters? Hur doesn't mention his name. He mentions the sin he committed that he wants forgiveness for. I am the one who blocked you from entering Kufa. I am the one who made you come to this land. I am the one who put fear in the hearts of your daughters. I am the one who put distress in the heart of Zainab. What does he say now? Is there any wife for me, Abba Abdullah? 
Is there any way for me to be forgiven? Is there any way for redemption, Ya Aba Abdullah? What does Imam al Hussein say to him? What does Imam al Hussein say to him? What do you expect the grandson of Rahmatan lil Alameen to say? قال يا حر إن تبت تاب الله عليك without any hesitation without any grudge إمام الحسين says oh حر welcome if you repent Allah will forgive you Hur says, Ya Aba Abdullah, I don't want to come down from my horse. I am more useful to you on my horse. Do you give me permission to enter the battlefield? Imam al Hussein gives him the signal. He enters into the battlefield. A few moments ago, he was the commander of the forces of Umar ibn Sa'd. Now he is a soldier in the camp of Hussein. He enters the battlefield. He fights valiantly until he is struck with a fatal blow. When he falls on the plains of Karbala, he calls out to the only one he wants to see in his last moment. What does he say? He doesn't complain about the pain. He doesn't express any fear of death. What does he say? He says, Ya Aba Abdullah, Ya Aba Abdullah, hurry, come to me, Ya Aba Abdullah. Imam al Hussein, he rushes to him. He reaches him. Hur ibn Yazid al Riyahi is in his final moments. Imam al Hussein, he cradles him. He wipes the blood from his face. He strokes his head gently. And he looks into the eyes of Hur and he says to him, He mentions the mother of Hur. He says to him, Oh Hur. This was not an accident. This is from the barakah of your mother. He says to him, Ma akhta'at ummuka in sannatka hurra. Oh, your mother was right on the day that she named you. Because your name means to be free. Because you are free in this life and you will be prosperous in the hereafter. 
When he entered this world, the first face that he saw was the face of his mother. The mother that raised him into the man that he became on the day of Ashura. And the last face that he saw before departing this world was the face of the ultimate man. Abi Abdullah al la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah al-ali al-azim Sayyalamu al-lazina zalamu ala Muhammad Ayyamun qalbin yanqalibun wal-aqibatu lil-muttaqin Sallu ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad